Well, good morning, church. I've got a friend named Alec Millen, and he's just a, a big bear of a man. He's at least as tall as Jesse. Maybe you might even have an inch or two on your brother, and he's probably got 50 pounds on you. Just a giant dude. And uh, Alec is a pastor currently up in Pennsylvania. Uh, he's a former missionary with Wycliffe Bible Translators. I think he and his wife, uh, Tammy, spent probably about a decade or so in Africa. And we go way back 20 plus years uh, to a church in South Carolina. And um, Alec is one of the, he's got some of the funniest stories I've ever heard, all right? Uh, one of which was a fishing trip he and his brother went on, who's also a, a big fella, uh, in Idaho somewhere. And, and they were walking out in this field and Alec, for some reason, He's got his fishing gear and he's trying to get to a river and he's going through some woods when he comes face to face with a bear. And and so Alec tells a story about meeting this bear. The bear actually rises up on its back two legs and is kind of waving his arms at him. And and Alec is trying to think, okay, what do you do with this kind of bear? You know, there's certain, not all bears are the same. There's certain kinds of bear where you're supposed to stand your ground and growl back and, and make, you know, hands up and, 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 and get them to, you know, like a black bear, right? Um, you know, kind of intimidate them. And then there's the grizzly bear where uh, that's not the right thing to do. You know, you don't want to make eye contact. You want to back away slowly. Uh, and, and, you know, if he comes at you, um, actually hit the ground in the fetal position. And so Alex trying to remember all this stuff when he does something involuntarily after backing away for a little while and having the bear kind of come towards him, he turns and runs. And evidently, you're not supposed to do that with either bear uh, species because uh, the bear comes after him, right? So uh, from, from Alec's brother's perspective, his brother was behind him in the, uh, in, in the clearing in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the field. He sees Alec running out of the tree line, screaming, top of his lungs. He kind of threw his fishing gear everywhere, and he's waving his arms, and he's yelling, run for your life. And as he approaches his brother, his brother sets his fishing gear down, and he pulls out a camera, and he takes a picture. <laughs> and the embarrassing part of the story for Alec is, is later when they're looking at these pictures, uh, that bear really wasn't very big. It was really kind of a, a little bear uh, that, that had Alec running for his life, right? Well, Alec has an, another story. That, that one really had nothing to do with the sermon. I just wanted to share that with you. But he, he, he has another story that I think does kind of uh, introduce maybe this message. Uh, and, and that is, um, Alec played football in college for the University of Georgia, um, and uh, it's, it's hard to say right now because they gave my Gators a wampin yesterday, but um, all right, so we've got a few Georgia fans in the room. Well, Alec was an All-American his senior year in 1992, and he, he tells me that he really wasn't that great of a football player, he was just really mean. And actually, it's true. Um, I, I went up later and looked at, looked, looked at uh, you know, found a couple news articles about him, and back in the day, uh, uh, before he was saved, he was such a mean guy that he would actually attack some of his own teammates sometimes during practice, and, and was, was uh, an, intense, an intense player, uh, was saved um, uh, through, through a, a chaplain's ministry in, in football, and, um, and, and so his, uh, he goes on in 1993, he was drafted by the New York Jets, and he was, he was an NFL player just for a couple years, uh, and then kind of went off into, into ministry. But he, t- he tells a story about uh, his first year uh, at, at training camp, and uh, you know, there were some, some greats on this team, and as he walks in, uh, everybody starts chanting his name. And at first he thought, are they calling my name? You know, he walked in kind of humbly, but they keep chanting his name, they start clapping, and he kind of 
started getting kind of like, wow, they know my name. He, did, he got up and he did a little dance. And then they stopped clapping and they all just pointed at him and started mocking him and laughing. And it was all a big joke. They were hazing him. Okay, so suddenly he was like, and basically the message was, hey, you might have been a big deal in college. Uh, you got to earn your stripes here, buddy. Okay, uh, but you know, the truth is, most of us, if we're honest, have uh, either maybe had a dream about it or maybe a daydream about it, if we're more honest. Uh, the idea of being in some sort of setting where we receive um, uh, a grand reception, where, where people are calling our name, maybe giving us some kind of um, acclamation for uh, a, a sports accomplishment, maybe running out in a field, you know, like Tim Tebow and, and, you know, giving high fives all around the stadium, or maybe just at work where you get, you know, recognized for all of your, your, your labor and, and people praise your name. And, and so, so here we see uh, a story in the life of Jesus Christ where he actually did receive a grand reception, what we might call a grand reception. And so verse 12 of John chapter 12 tells us that story, uh, and it says the next day, and so this is the day that Christians have um, celebrated on Palm Sunday. Now, it's not Palm Sunday. We're not even in the right time of year for it, but this is where we have arrived in, in, in John. And so there was a large crowd we read about here that, that had come to the feast, and this was the Passover feast. And, and they heard that Jesus was coming. And you will remember that the day before, all of these people had come for the Passover celebration. Um, there were uh, crowds in Jerusalem, and, and there was a lot of buzz, like, will Jesus show up? The, the Pharisees had, had, had basically um, put a hit out on Jesus. They, they had now put him on their most wanted list, and they had even uh, put Lazarus on that list because Lazarus's fame had gone out, and, and people were coming and hearing about Jesus because of curiosity. Here, here, this man who had been dead was now alive and was testimony to Jesus's power, and, and so there was all this buzz, and so now the crowd hears that Jesus is coming. And so we pick up in verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, they really got something here, right? Hosanna means, save us, Lord. That's, that's what it means. Save us, Lord. It might, have been a, it, it might have been kind of like a God save the king kind of thing, or it might have been literally more of a, he's come, the Messiah's come, um, save us. And, and they recognize here that he was indeed the king of Israel. And they, and they quoted from Psalm 118. Well, what does Psalm 118 say? Well, let's review some of these verses. Verse 19 reads, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name 
of the Lord. So why did the crowd give this grand reception to Jesus? As as we've read about his interactions with the crowds in in Jerusalem, we've read that there were some who believed, uh, there were many who scorned and and doubted and disbelieved, and then there were some who kind of believed. And we're going to see more of that in in the coming days, um, where where some will believe, but they're not willing to put all the marbles in and, and just follow him. And so there were doubters and there were opponents, but, but John tells us why uh, among the, the crowds that had come together for the Passover, there were so many who did at this point uh, believe. And so he tells us in verse 16, he says, his disciples did not yet understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So at this point, hey, they're just kind of going with it, Right. But the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they had heard that he had done this sign. And we've seen in John a number of signs, but the, the grand sign that Jesus performed was raising a dead man back to life. A man who had been dead for days and was really dead back to life. And there was a crowd that had seen that. And that crowd is out there telling others. And Lazarus is walking around. And so there were a lot of people who were there and ready to receive Jesus as their Messiah, as as their hero, and to come behind him. But then Jesus did something a little bit unexpected. And, And that brings us to second point of our sermon this morning. That's different expectations. In in his moment of glory, you you might think that Jesus would have mounted a great white steed, kind of like Alexander the Great, you know, riding into a a conquered city on his favorite war horse, Brucephalus. But but instead, what does Jesus do? He, He mounts a little donkey for what people call, what Christians call, the triumphal entry. Not exactly what you'd expect. Truly not what the Jewish people expected. So let's look at this a little more closely. What what is Jesus doing here by riding a donkey into Jerusalem? Well, verse 14 says, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Now we need to remember that this was not an afterthought of Jesus, right? It wasn't his only option. Well, I need need something to ride on and and here's a little donkey. I'm going to jump on that. This was intentional. It was premeditated. Uh, Matthew chapter 21 actually gives us the backstory uh, of how Jesus instructed his disciples to go and find a certain donkey. So this was Jesus' intention. This was how he was going to do it. And, and we read in, in Matthew chapter 21's account, verse 6, that the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought this donkey and the colt, and they put their cloaks on it, and he sat on them. Now, I don't think that his disciples yet fully grasped the significance of the donkey, but hey, they they went with it. They were just kind of going with what he said. And as the the buzz grew and the crowds grew, they they honored him as their triumphant king. And so we read in Matthew's account of 21 verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And that's something Matthew tells us that John doesn't. So they were actually putting their, their coats down on the, or their, on, on the road for the donkey to actually walk on, and others cut branches, that's these palm branches, from the trees and spread them out on the road. 
And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Well, well John, back to his account, explains to us the significance of the donkey by, by quoting from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah in verse 14. Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And so let's look at that and think about that for a little bit. Uh, uh, this, this morning we, we already heard as we um, uh, started our time of gathered worship when uh, Chris read to us from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. But verse 9 of Zechariah 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the, the foal of a donkey. Jesus indeed was the Messiah, but instead of mounting a war horse, he mounted a humble animal of peace, that is, the donkey. Pastor Matt Carter makes the point regarding this. Jesus is different from the average political ruler. The choice of the donkey reveals this king will achieve his victory through humility. The salvation he secures will come through meekness. He doesn't come to destroy other nations, but to proclaim peace to the nations. The Jews expected the Messiah to liberate them, crushing the nations in the process, but the king comes to bring peace to all the nations. Now, this was not what the crowd was expecting. Now, they got it right that Jesus was indeed their Messiah, but their expectations for what was about to happen, for what he would do, those were off. Now, they were quoting from Psalm 118, which we read, right? Well, it's important when we look back at Jewish history to understand this was the, the same song that their forefathers about a hundred years earlier had sung when the, when the Jewish warrior Judas Maccabeus had liberated Jerusalem from the Greeks. They had all sung Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the palm branches that they were waving the significance of that is these palm branches were a symbol of the Maccabean revolt against the Greeks. And so we've, we have coins that, that were minted during that era, Jewish coins, they all have palm branches on them. And so this was, this was, these were symbols of Jewish nationalism, which was in peak fervor right now, in full display. And so they fully, this crowd fully expected Jesus to use his divine power, that same power that he had brought back Lazarus from the dead, using that power and his charisma to mount a throne and to lead a revolt against their oppressive Roman overlords. That's what they expected him to do. That's not what we read that Jesus did. That wasn't his purpose. The crowd was correct in their understanding that Jesus was indeed their long-awaited Messiah, but they were wrong in their expectation with what Jesus was about to do. Jesus rode into Jerusalem not to mount a political throne, but to be lifted up on a painful 
cross. He came not to liberate the Jews from their servitude to Rome, but to liberate the nations, which included the Jewish nation, from slavery to sin and slavery to death. Well, let's stop and and reflect for a moment on our own eyes, on our, in our own lives, right? God's plan does not always match our own expectations, right? Especially when it comes to timing. I mean, we, we pray for deliverance and we want it now, right? We want our, our healing now. So, so if we're honest, sometimes we want our comfort and our glory now. When God's view is often uh, much more long-term. He tells us that for the Christian, we receive this in heaven. Sometimes he gives us answers to these desires and these prayers now. But the ultimate answer for us as Christians is when we cross that Rubicon, we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, you know, people don't always respond well when their frustrations, uh, or I'm sorry, their expectations are frustrated, Right? People don't get what they expected. Sometimes they can turn on you really quickly. I, I remember uh, back in 2008, uh, we were back from the, the field, uh, the mission field, and, and I remember going out to Jacksonville and, and visiting with my old mentor, Bob Tebow. And at that point in time, his son, Tim, and I'm sorry for all these football illustrations, but that's what we got today. Um, some of you might not mind, um, kind of towards the end of our, our seasons, right? Um, well, well, Bob Tebow then was telling his son, Tim Tebow, who at this point was, was kind of ascending his greatness at University of Florida. Uh, I think he was going into his junior year, if I remember right. And, and he was telling his son, don't trust all these voices in the media that are building you up. Because the very same voices and people who are, who are building you up the strongest will be the first and the loudest and the most vociferous to tear you down when you don't meet their expectations, when you don't do things the way they want you to do them. And so many in that crowd who initially welcomed Jesus, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, five days later, we're going to be a part of another crowd shouting, crucify him. We humans can be fickle, can't we? A guy named Charles Weed wrote a poem comparing Jesus Christ with Alexander the Great. And I came across this poem this week. I'm not sure I'd ever seen it before. But it's called The Conquerors. And I'll read it for you. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One lived and died for self. One died for you and me. The Greek died on a throne. The Jew died on a cross. One's life a triumph seemed, the other but a loss. One led vast armies forth, the other walked alone. One shed a whole world's blood, the other gave his own. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died in Babylon and one on Calvary. One gained all for himself and one himself he gave. One conquered every throne, the other every grave. When died the Greek, forever fell his throne of swords, but Jesus died to live forever, Lord of lords. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. The Greek made all men slaves, 
the Jew made all men free. Now I'm going to stop him for a moment. And, and I think it's important to note, I think he's speaking a little bit hyperbolic, right? Uh, not every single human on earth became a slave of Alexander, although many did. Um, Jesus Christ died for all who trust in him. And that's important to remember. Um, those who bow their knee before him and, and give him their hearts in faith, those men and women are made free. One built a throne on blood the other built on love. The one was born of earth, the other from above. One won all this earth to lose all earth and heaven, the other gave up all that all to him be given. The Greek forever died, the Jew forever lives. He loses all who gets and wins all things who gives. We're talking about two kingdoms. God's ways are not always ours, but this was all a part of God's plan. And that's that's the third point this morning, our final point. We're going to spend a little bit of time here. God's plan for the world. God's plan for the world. Back in Genesis chapter 49, we, we read a prophecy that was given over Judah, the, the man from whom the tribe was born. And we read, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. You see, God's plan from the beginning was that the nations would come and worship Jesus. And we, we are starting to see that unfold, that theme unfold now in our text. And so it's interesting here, uh, you've probably noted already that John loves irony, right? And he shows how sometimes wicked things, wicked statements, even like Caiaphas's, if you remember uh, a couple sermons ago, what was used by the Holy Spirit, right, to prophesy what Jesus would do for the nation, and not only the nation of Israel, but for all among the nations who repent and put their trust in Jesus. And so here we see something like that happening again. In verse 19, where, where the Pharisees see um, this huge crowd, and here they are trying to stamp Jesus out, right? They're jealous. They're jealous of losing their power, their political power. And so they, they, they actually decided to put Jesus on their most wanted list, and now the crowd is going out to them, out to him. And so what do they say in verse 19? As a lament, they say, you see, you are gaining nothing to each other. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, maybe this was a little bit of an overstatement, right? I mean, it was a crowd of, you know, 99% at least Jewish folks. But they say, the world has gone after him. We are, we are losing our strategies of wickedness, are coming to nothing here. We can't stamp him out. The world has gone after him. And what John is, is using this irony to show us is, is God's sovereign work even through his lament. Because in the next two verses, which is part of our text for next week, we see this begin, beginning to happen. But I'll, I'll go ahead and, and preview it. Verse 20 says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. You might think, well, who are these? Well, we, we know from Paul and, and others, Josephus, that the, the Greeks were, were, were people who were really interested in other ideas, and there were some 
Gentile, maybe they were literally Greeks, or sometimes in the New Testament the word Greek means simply non-Jew, right? Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God into salvation for all who believe, the Jew first, and also for the Greek, the non-Jew, right? That's the African, that's the, that's the European, that's, that's the uh, folks who live on the Italian peninsula, as well as, as, as the Greek archipelago, non-Jews. And so here we have some Gentiles who had come to worship. And so these were uh, most likely proselytes, people who had come to believe in the, the God of the Jews, the God of the Old Testament, and they had come to worship at this feast. And so some of these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. So they too had heard. Maybe they had been part of that crowd. Maybe they had heard the buzz. And they want to meet Jesus. And interestingly here in the grammar, the way they um, uh, made this statement in the original language is an idea of continuation. In other words, they kept repeating their request. You know, I don't know exactly how it looked, but Philip may have had some big things to do and kept walking and they they may have kept grabbing him saying, sir, we want to see Jesus. One, One scholar put it this way, Matthew, at the very beginning of his gospel, shows us wise men coming from the east to Jesus. And and here John shows us wise men from the west coming to see Jesus. This is an important note, an important part of the theme of God's unfolding plan for the nations. And so God's plan for the nations should fuel our passion for global missions. You know, our our missions conference may be over, but we need to live each day on mission to to reach others. Last night, uh, my my brother, Pastor James Ross, spoke to the men who were able to come to the, 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 the men's night out, and he did a wonderful job walking us through 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And made a a number of points, but the big idea was that that we are to live as sojourners. The the picture there was living in tents, right? And so it was this idea of like at a Passover feast. Many people would come to Jerusalem. There wasn't enough lodging uh, for everybody, and they would set up tents all around the city. But these were temporary homes. And so the idea being, we need to be living for the eternal city. Our destination, our home, our identity is in heaven. We shouldn't put too much stock in our comfort now. In fact, he who, and he ends with Jim Jim Elliott's quote, right? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's how we should live. But as we walk through this life, we need to remember that everyone else we meet has an eternal destiny as well. And therefore, we are to be ambassadors for Christ. And James talked about the importance of walking around it, and even when we're at the store, maybe you have a list in your mind and, and things to do, seeing souls in need, souls who are lost, not just what we want to get done or what we want to get out of someone. So living on, 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 on mission means that when you are at Walmart or, or Publix, and maybe you see someone from a, a different country, a different nationality, Maybe it's, it's someone with a little bindi on their forehead, and, and you recognize, wait a minute, they're not from these parts, right? Um, uh, this, this is a, a South Asian, maybe someone from a Hindu background, 
Or maybe you see a woman with her, her head covered, and, and you recognize, hey, that's, that, there's, a, there's a Muslim right here in, in Niceville or in Destin, right? Or maybe you see a, a Jewish family, and let me just tell you right now, these days, I, I hope if you do see a family and, and it's clear that they are Jewish, uh, man, what a hard time. What a time of grief they're going through now. I hope you'll go talk to them and just tell them that you're praying for them right now, uh, that you love them. But I hope you'll do that for all folks that you meet who come from different parts uh, and not give in to the temptation to be territorial and to think, hey, these people don't belong here. Um, be a world Christian and, and pray for their soul. Look for an opportunity to, to be friendly and, and recognize God has brought them here in his providence. This is a part of even an opportunity we have to reach the nations right here. In, in Northwest Florida, praise God, we're seeing more of the nations coming to us. It's an opportunity to live on mission right now, right, right here. One, one pastor wrote, cross-cultural worldwide missions should be an overflow of our daily mission in the neighborhoods, offices, and relationships God has given us. Our mantra should be, quote, I will go where I can, send others to go where I can't, and pray diligently for the gospel to be fruitful in both places. I, I hope the mission's focus of our conference, I hope, I hope, I pray that it's not like, okay, that's done uh, next year. You know, I, I hope and pray you'll live on mission, church. Because, you know, the, we can't reach the nations unless, like, the mothership here is reaching our own nation and the nations who God sends here. We, we've got we've to encourage our sent ones and model it right here, exactly what we want them to be doing out there. That's what gives us the integrity and the authority to send out sent ones. In fact, th those that we hope to send are those who are doing it right here, who are loving others and, and who are uh, trying to reach out to the underdog, those who are trying to reach the, the least reach, those who have the less less understanding of the gospel, and we've got to do it incarnationally. We've got to love people enough to, to model and demonstrate the gospel and to share the gospel with them. Well, as we land the plane, we, we've, we're talking that the picture here is Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, right? As a, as a humble shepherd king. Well, let me ask the question, is Jesus a king? Yes, he is. Did he fulfill his mission? Yes, he did. Not just to liberate one people group, but to save men and women and boys and girls from every people group on earth. And one day he's going to return, not on a donkey, but on a war horse. Listen uh, to the words of Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray to that king. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you came not on that war horse to slay the nations, um, but you came to give yourself for the nations. But we know that one day you will come in judgment on that war horse. And Lord, I, I pray that today we would live in light of eternity. Help us realize the time is short. Lord, help us to long for your return and help us to live on your mission to reach all of those around us before it is too late. We thank you that we do serve you, our hero, our savior, our Lord, and our king. And I pray in your great name, amen.